Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Uh, Psalm 32. You know, we are uh, continuing our way through selected psalms. And many of these psalms uh, we have been singing together in corporate worship as well, which has been a wonderful opportunity to not only hear these psalms read to us, to not only hear these psalms explained and applied, but also to be able to sing in, in, in praise to our God these, these psalms. Well, please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, I did not cover, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, why do Christians go to church on Sunday? Have you ever thought about that? Why do Christians go to church on Sundays? Presumably, you're not, of course, the only ones in church on Sunday mornings. There are thousands, if not millions, of people in, in this country who, who are in church on Sundays. Why do we who live in, in America, a wealthy, sophisticated, technological country, why, why why do we still bother with this seemingly outdated practice of, of going, going to church? What motivations do people have for going to church? Well, I think there are, are, are a number of motivations people have that get them out of bed, out of their house, into church on Sunday. One of these motivations is entertainment. There are people who desire to go to church to be entertained. They want a good experience for themselves, for uh, their kids, for their family. And there are churches that seek to appeal to this motivation. And these churches make their services essentially a pop concert, a vehicle, a channel for pop culture. You have the, the hip worship band. You have the hip pastor who gives a self-help TED Talk. Another motivation is 
to be fired up to fight culture wars. And there are churches that seek to appeal to this motivation as well. And these churches make church essentially a political rally. Uh, there are some who, who are motivated primarily or solely to go to church for community. And the churches that appeal to this motivation make church essentially just a social club. It's built upon the foundation of common cultural and aesthetic hobbies and tastes. There are some who desire or are motivated to go to church to be intellectually stimulated. This is sometimes a temptation for Reformed churches. And the churches that seek to appeal to this motivation make church essentially a lecture hall. Please turn to chapter 5, verse 6 in the textbook of Scripture. Now, these things may be byproducts of going to church. We may go to church, and I hope you're engaged and you enjoy our, our going through our liturgy together. You may go to church and learn principles that are very helpful as you think about culture and society. You may go to church, and I hope you, you experience community and fellowship. You may go to church and be intellectually stimulated as you hear God's word read and explained and applied to your life. However, these things should not be the primary reason we go to church. These things should not be the primary motivation for going to church. What then should be the primary reason and motivation for going to church on Sundays? Well, this week I was reading a portion of a book written by a certain theologian about pastoral ministry. And this theologian was anecdotally talking about his, his life, and he grew up in a very rural agrarian area in the Midwest. And he himself grew up in a very small congregation in that setting, and as he began to discern a call to the ministry, he always envisioned himself ministering in a similar place to which he grew up, a small congregation in a rural agrarian area. However, his first call out of seminary was to a congregation in a university town. And this author shared how intimidated he was in this first call because this church was filled with PhDs, professionals, and professors. And he remembers early on in his call, one of the professors who was also, or one of the congregants who was also a professor at this local university, uh, took him aside and said, Pastor, I just want you to know that the reason I come to church on Sundays is not to be intellectually stimulated, but because I'm a sinner in need of God's word. That congregant got it right. Our primary reason and motivation for coming to church on Sundays should be that we are sinners in need of God's word. Our primary reason and motivation for coming to church on Sundays should be that we have sin to confess and assurance to be had. Our primary reason and motivation for coming to church on Sundays should be that we need to be exposed and humbled by the law of God, and built up and comforted by the gospel. Yet again, our primary reason, motivation for coming to church on Sunday should be that we are sinners in need of God's gracious declaration of pardon. So a better and more helpful image to think of our times together would be the church as temple. Think about in the Old Testament. Israelites did not come to the temple to be entertained. They did not come to the temple to have their intellect um, tickled. 
They did not come to the, the temple to fight culture wars or primarily to find community. They came to the temple because they were sinners in need of forgiveness. And so now in the new covenant, we come to the new covenant temple, a temple built upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles. And as we enter God's presence on the Lord's Day morning, we are sinners who need assurance that we are forgiven. And so Psalm 32 is all about the, this primary reason and motivation that we should have for going to church on Sundays. We are sinners in need of God's gracious declaration of pardon. So this morning, what I'd like us to do is to consider uh, three main points. We'll look at how repentance is a struggle for us as, as, as fallen sinful creatures. We'll consider the definition of repentance. And lastly, we'll consider the blessing of forgiveness. Well, Psalm 32 is one of six Psalms of Confession. And in Scripture, there are two main ways in which uh, repentance is used. Sometimes it's used as the flip side of faith. So you think of, in the book of Acts, those repeated calls to repent and believe. Two sides of the same coin. Other times, Scripture uses repentance as one duty that we have in our grateful life of service that we owe to God as his redeemed image bearers. Martin Luther, in his very first thesis of his 95 theses, theses, says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed that the entire life of believers would be one of repentance. Repentance is part of our life of gratitude that we owe to God as his redeemed image bearers. Now, whenever Scripture calls us to do something, whenever we come across an imperative in Scripture, it's there because we struggle to do that very thing. Otherwise, God wouldn't need to remind us. God wouldn't need to call us to do that. Boys and girls, oftentimes one of the reasons why your parents remind you to do things, tell you to do things, is because they know that you're prone to forget and more often you're prone to not want to do that thing. And so it is with Scripture. Whenever we come across an imperative, it's an imperative that we need because we're prone to not want to do that imperative. And so as we approach Psalm 32 as a psalm of confession, a psalm of repentance, before we even dive into it, we know that there's something, something we need to hear because we are prone to struggle with repentance. Now notice in verse 3, David says, for when I kept silent. David acknowledges that there are times in his life where he is silent, literally silent. Times in which he does not confess his sins to his God. Times in which he does not confess his transgressions to other people, those whom he has sinned against. There are times in which David is metaphorically silent. Times in which he's blinded to his sin. Times in which he's hardened in his sin, times in which he doesn't want to depart from his sin. If we're honest with ourselves, we too are oftentimes silent. We fail to literally confess our sins to our God. We fail to make confession a habit in our Christian lives. We fail to confess to other people when we sin against them. 
We too are blinded to our sin, hardened by our sin, and love our sin a little bit too much. And so we struggle. We struggle with repentance. Now, why do we struggle with repentance? David talks about how there are times in which he is silent, and we know that there are times in our life in which we are silent. So why? Why do we persist in silence? Why do we at times struggle with repentance? Well, one of the main reasons why we struggle with repentance is because we are prone to self-righteousness. Now, self-righteousness is not only something that those who reject Christ struggle with. Even those who profess faith in Christ, even those who are justified, even those who are believers, continue to struggle with self-righteousness. And what is self-righteousness? It's essentially when we seek to build our life our identity, our sense of self, our joy, our worth upon the foundation of what we bring to the table, upon the foundation of our own righteousness and morality. And of course, those moments when we are being self-righteous, of course we don't want to confess our sins. Why would we want to chisel away at the very foundation that exists beneath our feet? That's a scary thing to do. We don't like being on unsure footing. We don't like when the footing beneath us seems to give way. So, of course, if we're standing upon the foundation of our own righteousness, of course we're not going to want to confess our sins, acknowledge our iniquities. And so, if you struggle to confess your sin, if you struggle to confess your sin to others, and when you do confess your sin, you have to qualify it with a million qualifiers, it's probably a good symptom, a good symptom that you... You are self-righteous. And this is true of all of us, is it not? A sure antidote to self-righteousness, then, is growing in our habit of repenting and confessing our sins. Not just to God, but to other people. It's a reminder that our life is not built upon the foundation of our own righteousness. And it's okay when our righteousness is exposed, because that's not where our life is found. One of the the effects of of continuing in this silence that David speaks of is that we become hardened in this sin. We become blinded to this sin. Now think of David. His most famous sins, of course, is his adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah. He didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to commit adultery today. I'm going to commit murder today. It started with a glance. But yet, with that glance, David stayed silent. And he let that sin fester And silence, in many ways, is the fertilizer for sin in our life. And that sin grew until it became these great sins of murder and adultery. And so we struggle. We struggle with repentance. And in this struggle, we do well to consider the definition of repentance. What is repentance? What does it mean to repent? Luther says that the whole life of a believer is a life of repentance. What does that mean? We'll notice in verse 1 and verse 3, David uses three terms to refer to sin. He, he says sin itself, but then he also uses the term iniquity and the term transgression. And this, this term iniquity brings out a slight nuance. 
And the nuance that this, this term iniquity brings out is that our sin is conscious and intentional. Meaning we consciously and intentionally sin against our God. This term transgression brings out this idea of rebellion. So our sin is conscious rebellion against God. And you'll also see in verse 3, David uses three different terms and phrases to refer to repentance. He talks about acknowledging sin. He talks about not covering up sin. He talks about confessing sin. And so what David is telling us here is that we are to confess our sin, not just in generalities, but in particularities. And so yes, in our, in our corporate worship, we do confess a general psalm or prayer of confession, but we also have a time to confess our particular sins to our Heavenly Father. But this also is telling us that we are to confess and acknowledge our conscious rebellion against God and the way in which he made us to live in this world. That's what our sin is. It's conscious rebellion against God and the way in which he made us to live in this world. I've mentioned this before, but one way we should think of morality is as a moral order. An order that is written into the very fabric of this universe. An order that is written upon our hearts. And this moral order is analogous to the physical order of this natural universe. A physical order that we've learned in science class. A physical order that we know through experience. And we know based on our own experience that if we seek to defy nature, defy this physical order, generally speaking, things don't go well for us. You know, imagine someone who climbs up to the top of his roof and, and jumps down thinking he's just going to float down to the ground, but yet he comes crashing down and he breaks his leg. That's odd, he says. He waits for his leg to heal six months, and as soon as he can walk again, he climbs up to the top of his roof, jumps off, thinking he's going to float down, and he breaks his leg again. He says, that's odd. He waits another six months so he can walk again, and he does the very same thing. He climbs up to the uh, top of his roof, jumps down, thinking he can float to the ground, and his leg is broken again. He says, huh, I wonder why that happened. Or think of someone who, who thinks they can just walk through a door without opening it. And they have this huge egg on their forehead because you can't walk through a door. That's not how God made this world. Well, confessing our sin is, in a moral sense, like this hypothetical individual finally realizing, I can't just jump off my roof and float to the ground. It's like this hypothetical individual realizing, I can't just walk through doors. When we confess our sin, we are acknowledging that we are going against the moral fabric of this universe. You'll see in verse 9, David says that we are not to be like a horse or a mule. Horses and mules are, are stubborn. They need bits and bridles to be controlled. And David, David, David's, uh, what David's saying here is that we all are prone to be horses and mules in a moral sense. We consciously rebel against God. And our sin is irrational. It doesn't make any sense. Just like it doesn't make any sense for someone to go on top of their roof and think they can just calmly float to the ground. And so too, it doesn't make any sense why we would go against the moral fabric of this universe and expect good to come from it. But yet again, we're horses and mules. There, there's an irrationality to sin. 
just as there's an irrationality uh, when, we, when people seek to go against the physical order of this universe. And in verse 3, David speaks about these natural consequences that he experiences because of his sin. He talks about how his bones are wasting away. This might be a literal reference to disease or sickness that he was facing, or it might be a metaphorical reference. Uh, we're not sure. He also speaks about how uh, one natural consequence is, is life feels like a hot Mediterranean summer in a negative sense. Now, we should think of, of these consequences not as God treating our sin with tit-for-tat retribution, but, uh, but as the natural consequences to our sin. Just like there are natural consequences when you jump off a roof or try to walk through a door without opening it, there are natural consequences that can come when we try to go against the, the moral fabric of this universe. And so when we confess our sin, what we're doing is we're acknowledging our conscious rebellion against the way God made us to live in this world. We're essentially getting a glimpse into an objective view of our lives. Just as you can think about that hypothetical person and think that person's crazy. Well, this is what we do in a moral sense as we seek to vitiate against the fabric, the moral fabric of the way God created uh, this, this, this world. I've mentioned before that one of the ways we should think of God's law is as a mirror. This is actually how John Calvin speaks of the law of God. The law of God is like a mirror. And we are called to peer and look into this mirror of God's law. One of the reasons why we don't like God's law is because we don't like how it exposes us. We don't like what we see when we honestly look at ourselves in the mirror of God's law. There are many people who uh, don't like looking into literal mirrors because they're afraid of what they're going to see. Uh, it gives you a taste of objective reality. In a similar way, we, we don't like to look into the mirror of God's law because we're afraid of what, uh, of what, of what we will see. But notice here that David tells us that he did not cover his iniquity. David's essentially saying here that he looked into the mirror of God's law and he was honest about what he saw. He did not cover his iniquity. And so too, you are called not just to read the gospel, but you are called to read and hear the law of God, the commands of scripture. And you are called to be honest about what you see. If you don't feel conviction when you read or hear the law of God, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with your gaze. When you peer into the commandments of Scripture, the law of God, you should feel exposed. You should feel convicted. You should feel a sense of being undone as you get a glimpse into the moral character of our God. And in our confession, then, we are not to cover up what we see in that mirror. We are to be fully honest and transparent as we acknowledge our sin before God. As I mentioned before, one of the reasons why this is hard for us to do is because we are prone to self-righteousness. It's, it's very uncomfortable for us to do this because it exposes our righteousness uh, for what it is. Filthy rags before God and his moral standard. And so repentance is a struggle. Uh, it's a struggle for us uh, to be 
honest about our conscious rebellion against God. It's a struggle for us to look into the mirror of God's law and to not cover our iniquity. And so let us, uh, let us consider the blessing, the blessing of, of forgiveness. As I mentioned before earlier in our service, God's gracious goodwill towards us is that he doesn't leave us in the muck of our sin, but he ensures that the cross has the final word. And that's what we see here in Psalm 32. So if you look with me at verse 1, David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then look with me in verse 5. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. Notice the play on words there. David does not cover his iniquity. As a consequence, he has the promise that his sin is covered. So when we are honest as we look into the mirror of God's law, when we don't cover our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities, we have the promise that we are covered by the blood and righteousness of Christ. We are covered by Christ's blood, meaning he wipes away, takes away all of our sin. He takes responsible, responsibility for the wrath that our sin has earned. But more than that, Christ covers us with his righteousness so that we don't stand before God naked. We stand before God clothed in the perfect works, works and merit, merit, merits that he performed here on this earth. Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul cites uh, verse 1 as part of his argument for justification by faith alone. And in Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul is speaking about the, the, double, uh, the, two side, the two sides of justification. Justification includes the imputation of our sin to Christ's account, meaning Christ becomes our sin. But it also includes the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account. So you have this double transaction that's going on. Our sin goes to Christ, and Christ's righteousness comes to us. And Psalm 32 is, is focusing on this idea of how our sin is imputed or credited to the account of Christ. You know, boys and girls, I've shared this illustration with you before, but you can think of this in terms of a bank account. Imagine that God requires a million dollars to enter his kingdom. And our problem is not only that we don't have a million dollars, but we are a million dollars in debt. Furthermore, we not only don't have a job in which we can gain an income, we continue to charge that account day after day. What Christ does, he essentially goes to the bank and says, yeah, that, that debt that each one of us has, charge that to my account. And, and, and the, the million dollars, the wealth of good works that I performed, that I earned, by my own merit, yeah, give that to them so that we can enter God's kingdom boldly because we are wealthy in Christ. That's, that's what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 4, and he uses Psalm 32 as part of his argument for getting there. And this also shows us that, that David was justified the same way we are justified. The Old Testament saints weren't saved in some different way than we are saved in the New Covenant. David was trusting in Christ for the same reasons why we trust in Christ. We need our sins to be covered. Now notice what verse 1 says. In fact, notice what the first word of this psalm is. Blessed. Blessed. What does this make you think of? Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who, 
walks according to the moral fabric of this universe. That's what, that's what uh, the psalmist is saying in Psalm 1. And here, uh, David's using the same word. He said, blessed are the ones, are the, is the one whose sins are forgiven. Now, when you think of blessedness, when you think of, you know, the ultimate state of bliss, happiness, what comes to mind? Do you think of a, a, a vacation, time off work? Do you think of a particular hobby or leisure pursuit that you enjoy? Uh, do you think of success in a career, financial security? Do you think of a well-ordered home? Do you think of children and having those children be respectful and obedient and successful? Do you think of relationships, community, being loved? What do you think of when you think of, of blessedness, bliss, happiness? Do you think of the declaration of pardon that you hear each and every Lord's Day? Does that even enter your mind? Is that on your list? If we read verse 1 and this idea of ultimate blessedness and the forgiveness of sins is an alien concept to us, the problem is not with our cognition. Our problem is not to, to learn more about the ins and outs of justification. Our, our problem is with our heart and the priorities of our heart. You know, one of the, one of the, the temptations for us as American Christians is that we compartmentalize our faith. You think of all of your spheres in your life. You think of your family life, your social life. You think of your hobbies, your career, and then you have the sliver of your life, maybe 10% of your life, that's devoted to religion. And you do value the promises that you hear in God's word. You value your faith, but only in that 10% of your life. What really matters is how your career is going. What really matters is how your children are doing. What really matters is the opinion of others in your social circle. And so, yes, the, these, the, the, this declaration of pardon is important, but it's maybe number eight, number nine, number ten on the list. We so often cherish and love the opinions or opinion of others more than the opinion of God. We so often love and cherish the comforts of this world more than the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ. We, we so often love and cherish the security that we get from relationships or from money more than the security that we have because of the blood of Christ. So again, if this is an alien concept to you, the idea of ultimate blessedness and happiness coming from the forgiveness of sins, the problem is with the priorities of our heart. We need to recognize the inherent value of what David's saying in verse 1. Blessed. Blessed. Not just, you know, your, you know the, the eighth greatest blessing in your life is what I'm about to say. No, he's saying the greatest blessing in your life is what I'm about to say. Your sins are forgiven. When we recognize the inherent value of what David's saying here, it frees us up. It frees us up to not allow the opinions of others to have such a sway over our life. It frees us up to actually enjoy the common blessings in this world in a way 
in which we are not dominated by them as their slaves. It frees us up to look at the insecurity that exists in all of our lives and trust and find security in Christ alone. Recognizing the inherent value of verse 1 leads to freedom, freedom that God wants us to experience in this life. And so each and every Sunday when I, when I get up here and I raise my hand and I declare over you that if you are trusting in Christ, your sins are forgiven, I'm not just going through the motion. This isn't just something that we do for rote tradition. We do this because we all need to be reminded that our greatest source of happiness, our greatest source of blessedness lies in this declaration. Your sins are forgiven, and it's a call for you to live in the freedom that God wants you to live in because this is true of you. So, congregation of Christ, why do we come to church on Sunday mornings? Why are we motivated to come to church on Sunday mornings? This this psalm tells us that we should be motivated to come to church on Sunday morning because we have sin that needs to be confessed, and we have assurance to be had. Why should we invite our neighbors and friends to church? Not primarily for them to be entertained, not primarily uh, for them to be able to hear conservative or or, uh, uh, progressive political policy, not primarily for them to have their intellect tickled, but because they are sinners in need of God's forgiveness. Let us pray.